All right, everybody, it is time for another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. But before we dive in to our awesome, awesome guest and conversation today, I want to remind you guys of two things. And the first one is that if you go to Crypto101insider.com, you can join our private community. Here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks. We also have uh, Crypto 101 University. Uh, where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy-to-understand way. Uh, and we have a weekly newsletter that goes out and quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to Crypto101Insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, It took 11 months of our lives to write, and we're calling it Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. We walk you through this fascinating world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and it's part history book, it's part instructional guide, and it's going to really show you guys why cryptocurrencies are globally disruptive and how they're going to actually change in real life and in real terms the way that we buy and sell and even live. We include a bunch of how-tos on getting started with your first exchanges. Uh, We give you tips on how to safely buy and sell and store cryptocurrencies, as well as how do we evaluate potentially good cryptocurrencies. And the best part of the book is that we're giving it away for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping and handling. So go to CryptoRevolution.com and pick up your copy today. All right, everyone. Happy Tuesday or Thursday, whenever you're listening to this podcast, you guys know we do two a week. We're excited to, to be here, guys. Um, I'm not joined by my notorious co-host today, Mr. Pizza Mind. He is traveling the world. He's at Cosmoverse uh, in Colombia currently, uh, learning about the Atom ecosystem and all the good things there. But we're going to dive into uh, the Ethereum ecosystem with the head economist of Consensus, Lex Sokolin. Uh, Lex, welcome to the show. There's a lot of ground to cover. Oh boy. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, Lex, you've got a killer background. Uh, we were just catching up before the show um, and you know, you, you worked at Lehman, you worked at Deutsche, you worked at Barclays, you were there on Wall Street during the past 2008 great financial crisis you saw the inner workings. You saw how it all unfolded and how it resonated. And uh, you know, you were saying that there are some troubling signs in the economy currently, which I think everybody um, could understand on a very high level. But we're going to kind of dive into that. Um, and, and you know, particularly, you know, this week we're recording this, uh, and there was a huge government-led uh, intervention or a central bank-led intervention onto the UK. Uh, bonds, the thirty-year bonds, and and you know you're very familiar with, uh, you know the the UK debt markets and all sorts of stuff, and and so I really don't know how to start this one. I'm typically not stumped, but there are so many uh, different avenues we can take it. Lex, what's the first thing that's on your mind right now as we're in this market environment? <laughs> uh, dollars, you you can get four percent on your dollar if you put it into a certificate of deposit. You know that's I would say <laughs> pretty sexy. Um, you should think about that. You know, get getting four percent on your savings, um, backed by uh, the FDIC, is a pretty good DeFi yield. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can you can yield farm American inflation. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just gonna just go into sort of dark humor the whole time. What's what's the thing on my mind? I mean, there's like a lot of detail, but before and instead of maybe getting into the detail, it's it's helpful to just parse some stuff into into categories, you know. So mm-hmm. the first is the difference between like an operating economy, or in crypto, it might be like a a protocol that is doing things that are literally productive, like making products that can, that people buy and pay for, uh, or other people put labor into and sell, or you know, 
access to some machines, some sort of uh, uh, DeFi machine, Uniswap, or something like that, where there's there's a um, a consumer benefit and somebody's willing to pay for that benefit through a price, you know, and when you add up all of those um, microeconomic interactions between businesses or projects or DAOs, and then um, buyers uh, of those products, you end up getting into, into an aggregate economy. So when you buy a sandwich, it's a, it's an operating economy. It's a, it's a, th- the thing is real. You got to eat, you happy to pay for the labor and for the sandwich and it's delicious. Um, that's different from the financial services sector and capital markets. It's related to it. The financial services sector controls parameters that can influence the operating economy. Um, If I yank interest rates so high, your mortgage triples, you're probably not going to be spending a lot of money on sandwiches. Uh, Or maybe you are, who knows? Uh, But the point (laughs) being is, you know, like, the, yeah, it depends on the sandwich, like how much avocado is in there. It's like grilled cheese. You know, if, if, a, if a law school dropout is putting it together, like there's lots of different variables on sandwiches. But, the, you know, the main point is there are things that are financial crises. There are things that are a result of the engineering of the capital markets. Like or, derivatives or, and stuff. Like derivatives and stuff, but also things like bonds or things like quantitative easing or things like a government saying we're going to buy up all the bonds of this maturity because if we don't then the um the the you know credit default swaps are going to be this expensive or collapse or whatever the obligations will go this way or that way um or and there are lots of links between the financial system which in the in the good case lubricates the economy and makes it grow um, and in the bad case, crashes everything down, puts people out of jobs, into recessions, breaks businesses, and so on. And so um, I think this distinction, you can see it now in the world. Like you can see the financial crisis that the United Kingdom is going into, you know, f- for a number of reasons, but one of the, the depreciation of the currency, right? The um, actually, so this is a, you you can pause here and say like, the the cost of energy is going up because of uh, of war of the invasion and the, you know like the the actual things going on in the world that's like an economic problem at the on the ground um but then that has implications for lots of financial things on top so you have inflation and then uh, because of the inflation central banks are adjusting their interest rates but the UK interest rates aren't as being adjusted as fast as the American interest rates. And so the pound is less valuable. And then there's the reserve currency issues and the fiscal policy issues. And so you have these financial kind of follow-on effects, these derivative effects um, that are separate from like how, how well or how productive stuff really is. And that can get really complicated and confusing. And it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's kind of that's that's one thing I wanted to lay out. And then the second thing to lay out is like the opinions and feelings that people have about the the philosophy of Web3 or traditional finance or like if you work at Facebook, are you a good person or not? If you work at Google or if you work at Goldman Sachs or Wells Fargo, are you a good person? If you work at uh, Compound or Maker, like, you know, like people have lots of emotions and feelings about what tribe they're in. And they similarly have these feelings about the assets they hold. So I, you know, somebody might hold bank stocks because they think they're going to get dividends or they might hold uh, crypto assets because they think the fiat system's dead or they might hold just uh, interest rate assets because they want the yield and they're creating some sort of play there. And they'll create stories about, you know, I'm a person like this and and my asset is good because I hold it. And that's a nice behavioral bias. Yeah. Um, Like, if think about it this way, you go out and you buy a mug and you have a mug uh, for, for five years and then you see the same mug new in a different store. 
you don't want the new mug. You want your mug because it's special <laughs> and it's valuable to you. And there's exactly. no, exactly. Yeah. So, and that's, a, that's a human um, kind of behavioral attribute. And it's the same thing with assets. However, what we see after the last year is that everything is, is still correlated and is plugged into the macro economy. Like the Web3 space is disruptive and different and has different internal dynamics in the way that bonds are different from equities, you know, and fintech is different from biotech, but the correlations are all going to, 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 uh, to one, like all the assets are moving in the same way. And the reason for that is you and me you might hold a share of Apple and a share of JP Morgan and some Bitcoin and also some Uniswap, right? And when you need cash to buy the sandwich or to pay your higher mortgage or your rent, you know, all of it, or buy gas or, or whatever, you're going to be selling your assets and the prices of the assets are going to go down as a result. And so I think one of the main things that um, I've been focused on is understanding much better how the, the global uh, environment filters to crypto and then how the crypto environment filters to the fundamentals of Web3, which is what, you know, consensus is working on, standing up and is really engaged in. Yeah, damn. They're, they're, yeah, that, that's incredible. And, and before we kind of dive into to Web3 infrastructure, I want to just, uh, you know, kind of tie a nice little bow on uh, the the kind of the the failing pension funds and like how do they shore up their defenses? How do you know governments shore up their defenses? I, I saw um, Japan was selling USD, buying a bunch of J uh, Japanese yen in order to shore up their defenses. Um, are, are there you know how do they yeah. not have their liabilities collapse in on themselves? I, I mean, everything's kind of relative to the, the, the spending and the balance sheets of the different banks. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the strange takeaways for me this time around is actually um, like how much the central bank playbook is like a protocol treasuries playbook, you know, like watching... Terra collapse because of its recursive logic. This thing is backed by this thing, and this thing is there because it's part of the same protocol. And if the other thing goes up, then this thing's valuable. You know, and the moment somebody realizes, wait, that's that's a circle, that's a self-reference, like the whole thing just turns into a bank run. And you 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 realize that the little economic experiments that protocols have been designing with their currencies are actually the, the the feds got the same playbook like you know issuing or minting the dollar um and you can mint you know you can print the dollar or burn the dollar through treasury operations and so on protocol treasury operations it's it, yeah for, well <laughs> federal US reserve treasury. us well federal reserve operations right if if you're buying treasuries or selling treasuries you're essentially doing the same thing with the money supply anyway the 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 mechanics are are really uh, analogous and also like you you actually do have the same circular issues of like um, you have the Fed which is trying to financially engineer an economy and it can't because the economy is what creates the economy not the financial engineering and you know and it's like well what is the money backed by by the economy um, how does the economy grow through interest rates what are interest rates interest rates are like the financial engineering of the money which is you know so it's it's the same sort of um mm. Same thing, but to, you know, to answer your um, question a bit more specifically, central banks uh, have uh, have balance sheets on which they have currencies of other countries. So, for example, the United Kingdom has about 110 billion U.S. dollars. You know, as a reminder, Terra was 40 billion, so 110 billion of U.S. dollars is not that much. Um, the Bank of Japan, I think, has a lot more, um, and it's not a trillion, but it, but it's it's I think in the hundreds of billions, uh, multiple hundreds of billions, and they spent twenty five billion dollars um, selling the dollar, buying up their own currency, in order to defend the value of their own currency. Now, if they draw down their whole balance sheet and they they can no longer 
sell the dollar, then that's that's what breaking the bank is. That's what Soros did to the Bank of England. Like they're holding a peg mm. um, above the natural kind of market clearing um, place. And then when they run out of quote unquote dry powder, i.e. capital, they will no longer be able to, again, quote, defend it. Uh, but there, you know, and then you get into, into all sorts of things like, well, we're going to borrow in order to defend the peg, or we're going to issue debt to ourselves or to the IMF or whatever, you know, so there's lots of sort of ways for other, other actors to help absorb some of this. And it's, it's a bizarre moment because the U S is essentially tank the U S the sort of policy decisions of the U S over the last six months are really destabilizing the developed world, uh, in, in a, yeah. in a, profound way like norway is, is having a currency crisis regardless of like its fiscal policies like it, it's um the dollar being so strong and, and having such higher interest rates relative to other currencies and sort of relatively having higher growth is maybe good for the u.s but not so great for everybody else yeah, it's definitely sucking liquidity uh, from all the emerging markets, and it just gets more expensive for, for their cost of living. I mean, we think we have it tough here in America. Um, our main export is inflation to other countries, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's, and it's not just cost of living, right? It's like, let's say I'm a business and I pay my costs in dollars because I'm consuming some technology service or some commodity or whatever. So I have inflation in dollar terms, plus I've devalued my currency 30%. So now my costs have gone up 50%. Now the government of my country realizes this and starts generating fiscal policies like we're going to pay for the electricity of you know every business over this amount, um, which makes the fiscal policy of that particular country worse and the currency even worse, which continues to push on that cycle. Um, so it's, you know, I think in real time, uh, very alarming what's what's going on. Yeah. And then I also read um, at the end of 2021, um, so we don't have updated numbers through 2022, but at the end of 2021, um, 85% roughly of world trade was denominated in and facilitated in the dollar. And so that's that's pretty crazy to consider. Because whenever a market move happens in the dollar, it does ripple out and touch every other economy, whether you want it or not. And I think that, like you know, the BRICS, you know, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, like they're trying to de-dollarize the world because they see this. And they're like, well, let's start to you know denominate trade between us in rubles or in yen and all that kind of stuff or or, or yuan. I mean, um, do you see that as an actual threat to de-dollarizing the world? Is you know, that's, you know, one of the maybe impetuses for, for Putin's invasion um, to de-dollarize the world because it does have such a strong grip and it does, you know, kind of hurt all these other countries. Uh, I, uh, I, I hesitate to speculate into the mind of Putin in large part because he's, you know, he's so impregnable. Um, I, I do think De-dollarization, though, is certainly a real vector of change. And I think that for, uh, especially in Asia, it, it is important for um, for China uh, to get off the dollar in some way as that economy grows and as they extend their uh, you know influence into Africa and the, the Asian region and so on. And I, th I think if you actually do look at the, at at the trade in the region, it has been uh, the, sh the share of dollar uh, trade has been going down. Um, you know, I I don't think that the Ukrainian invasion is for that for that purpose in particular. And the other thing to say is, um, like, if you're in the states, you can't you can't you can't be like America first about it. It's not good for you for some very obvious reasons like let's say you hold am look at the s&p 500 okay of those companies in the s&p 500 how many have a global pnl like many right probably probably, probably most, yeah 
if you want Apple to be failing, if you want Amazon to be failing, if you want Facebook to be failing, um, then y- you would think that it's sort of th- that the current economic environment kind of doesn't matter. But if you if you think about these global companies, which are larger than nation states in many ways, um, they have a global footprint. And so healthy spending in Europe, right? Like you, you don't want consumer discretionary to fail across all of Europe and then for for all of their kind of social policies to fail and have to get refinanced and default on loans like that's going to tank the that's going to tank the the stock market in the US and you know all the retirement portfolios of everybody who needs to to uh, to be able to survive on um, like 401k income or whatever. And then you're, you're reducing people's, um, assets into inflation and in, into higher priced goods. So there's lots of these recursive loops and, you know, it's, it's hard to draw direct lines because there's so many different dependencies, but it's, it's a very odd time. And, you know, like you can see this when you go down to the crypto world and you see things like when, when you would see, you know, Olympus DAO trying to get other DAO tokens into protocol liquidity uh, into their treasury, or you, you you see lots of protocols trying to diversify, but everything falls down together. It's because you're not you're not diver- you're you're all in the same ecosystem. You're not diversifying. You're like literally running on the same platform f- for the same users, right? So. Um, Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If somebody, let's say somebody's holding compound token and the compound token falls 70% in value, well, they're not going to be super excited to be trading on Uniswap and generating fees for Uniswap. And, you know, so like the, the interconnection um, that you see in the world is the same interconnection that you see within the blockchain protocol assets as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a, definitely a good kind of jumping off point for uh, for our transition to our conversation about DeFi a little bit um, here. And DeFi has changed a lot since it kind of... I don't know. I don't even know when you could say it first came out, but you know, I remember there, you know, DeFi yield farming summer of 2020. Um, and, and then everybody was, you know, kind of on the the whole boat of protocol owned liquidity with, you know, Tokamak and Olympus Dow. And um, you know, there was the recursive lending. What's you know, and all of it kind of proved to be um, a flash in the pan, these subsidies that run out, these uh kind of unsustainable models. 
Um, one thing that I'm particularly excited, and you'll see I'm wearing my Maker Dow shirt right here that I got at the, the Ethereum conference in 2018 or something like that. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about real world assets being married to the blockchain. So being able to tokenize uh, accounts receivables or some, you know, cash flows from a, a coal mine or whatever, tokenize that and be able to have people finance, um, real world assets on the blockchain. And I think that could be kind of the next stage of sustainable DeFi yields and, uh, what's kind of your vision here of the future of DeFi? So there's a lot of parts to that question. Um, and I think that all of it was productive. You know, like I think about the ICO boom and the ICO collapse. And then I think about the DeFi boom and the DeFi collapse and same for NFTs and PFPs and so on. Right. And I, I don't, I think each one is a wave coming in and a wave going out. And every time the wave goes in further um, and doesn't go out as far and then goes in further and so on, right? So ICOs were just venture capital decks on the internet that try to raise money. And then DeFi was and is a very functional system. I mean, it is a financial system, um, provides payments, provides banking, provides trading, provides investing, provides uh, asset allocation, insurance, and so on. That that is, um, I mean, it's it's a it's a miracle. <laughs> that, that <laughs> Nothing short of a miracle. Yeah, it is. It is a miracle that these applications work. They work at scale. You know, uh, whatever it was, two hundred fifty billion or or one hundred fifty billion, depending on which chains you count. But like, that's that's a financial industry, right? That's not yeah. like a, a that's not a oh, it's a business with that market cap. That's a financial industry. And, and so I do think that is um, that we should appreciate the fact that it, that it is functional software and that it works. And every time that the wave goes back out, um, it moves closer, you know, like people start talking about, well, it's not Bitcoin, it's blockchain, or it's not ICOs, it's security tokens, you know? And now I think we're in this place where it's like, where it's not, it's not uh, uh, on-chain native tokens of of DAOs. It's real-world assets, right? So you have like a poetry to this. It's a di- it goes back and forth. It's a dialectic, and I think it's you know it's it's very reasonable to be excited about bringing more assets on chain. But there are a lot of there are a lot of barriers to doing it. Yeah, and and sometimes it's easier to you know like for the internet. Do you want to be Google focused on creating search on top of internet native content? Do you want to be YouTube creating a platform for web to user generated videos? Or do you want to be like a company that's building the, and I I hate using the analogy, uh, but building the intranet for a large enterprise. Do you want to be the company that's taking a movie studio and trying to build Hulu to compete with YouTube using, you know, like traditional content in the middle of 2008? And the answer is probably you want to probably not. You, you probably want to be focused on how do you create native economic value in the emerging platform? There is a ton of value in taking the prior stuff and moving it into the new platform. There's a ton of value in that. It just, in my mind, uh, it follows rather than leads, you know? And, and so that's why the question for me has been, we had a wave, which was just the concept space, which is ICOs. Then we had a wave that was just a financial engineering, like a financial industry uh, implementation and that failed because there was no, or there was very little operating economy underneath. Now the next wave must have an operating economy because once you have a Web three economy that people can commit their labor there and make a living, and then use that to live their life in the real world and the digital world, then DeFi is just the banking system for Web three, you know, yeah. and it's it's and and that starts to come together. More financial engineering about different kinds of assets. I mean, it's cool. Um, and I think we need to erode at the um, 
at the, at the regulatory barriers. And I think the collapse of yield farming also makes people a lot more reasonable about risk return. You know, so mm-hmm. you might get excited about a 15% interest rate in, mm-hmm. on a supply chain projects per year. You know, you might not be looking for a thousand percent APR that is just a pyramid scheme. And so I, I do think there, there will be a cultural change that, that, that is productive, but it's still to me consequent to answering the question of like, if Web3 really exists and if we take it seriously, what is the productive economic activity that is native to it? Um, and how do we grow that? Yeah, no, that that's awesome. And so at, at consensus, you know, are you guys, you know, kind of trying to stimulate those kind of, you know, real world productive uh, DAOs? And are, is there kind of a lot of resistance there uh, to adoption of these sort of productive economies? Or are you seeing quite some, you know, success there? Yeah. So consensus does two things from a product perspective. Um, you know, we had our start as a venture studio, but that the company has shifted a lot over the years and, um, the, the venture activities have, are, are all part of a company called Consensus Mesh, which is a, the, the former portfolio. And there's Ethereal Ventures, which makes investments. And then Consensus, um, the kind of the main brand, focuses on two things. The first is getting developers to build in Web3 and giving them the tools to create things. And so that's Infura. Um, that's, you know, so being able to connect into a protocol, uh, and execute software that's truffle being able to write software that's, um, building the protocol itself. So we've done a lot contributing to the merge and to, uh, kind of pushing forward protocol design. And, and so getting developers and, and entrepreneurs to build stuff is kind of one side of it. And then the other side of it is getting people to use the things that the creators build. So. Of course, you know, MetaMask and making sure that people can actually access and interact um, with all the different applications that are that are built. So that that, you know, if the Web3 economy grows, all the stuff that I've described is going to grow. And the Web3 economy can only grow if you have more developers building more stuff. And then if you have more more people, individuals uh, using the stuff you know, people and corporations because corporations are people too. Um, So the, the one bit to amend that is um, we've taken a lot more, um, we've, we've been a lot more purposeful recently about um, crypto economics and that's my focus. uh, And in particular around token engineering, decentralization and, uh, governance, you know, so we've started being quite active as a uh, a delegate in some of the major protocols because uh, we think, you know, if if we think there's a Web three economy, then what are the key kind of pillars that hold it up? And we need to contribute to that. We need to contribute to the governance of those and the stewardship of those, you know. And so we've been active in Uniswap, and and we're becoming more active in a number of other. Uh, large protocols. And then we've also started thinking much more about like the product motion that we have for our products. What are different ways that that can be opened up in a Web3 manner? Uh, What are the different paths that don't get us into regulatory trouble, but, you know, financialize our communities and incentivize our communities and so on? Yeah, I saw just kind of on that uh, note of DAOs and, and governance um, and people just playing a part in it. I, I did see something recently from the CFTC uh, taking an action or some kind of public statement against one of these DAOs. Uh, I think it's called Uki DAO, which it was the first time I had ever heard of it. And so it, it couldn't have been that big. But any any light you want to shine on that before we kind of move on from that to- kind of topic? Yeah, I mean, I I would um I wouldn't pretend to give legal or structuring or regulatory advice. Um, I think out of the U.S. right now, there is a lot coming out of all the regulatory agencies. You know, the CFTC, 
which I do think that they did do a fine, if I remember. The SEC pursuing some folks for market-making activities, which were essentially creating a fake market for their token, um, which you know, kind of defrauds people out of out of um, their money because you think you're participating in trading, but you're really being duped by a robot into losing your money. The, the OCC, which is the, um, the the federal banking regulator, has become more conservative about stablecoins and bank like federally chartered bank ability to to hold stablecoins. You know, and then you've got the stuff for the treasury and uh, tornado cash and so on. So I think that there is the volume of regulation and action, I think, has increased. Some of that is mm-hmm. just lagging prior prior action, right? They're, they're not going to move fast. They're going to be considered and then they'll move. And they'll also move against things that are at the edges. You know, so there's no point punishing good actors. They're, they're going to most likely look at, okay, who who could be an example of a particular principle you know and so um whether we like it or not we have to get through the grinder i mean like there there's no path through the grinder other than through it and my personal view is that like the mountain and the ocean right the ocean is going to erode the mountain it's inevitable um but it might take it might take time mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess that's a, that's a perfect segue to kind of the last topic that I wanted to discuss with you um, was the Ethereum merge. And, uh, you know, the Ethereum merge transitioned, uh, you know, Ethereum from a $200 billion proof of work asset uh, to a $200 billion proof of stake asset. And I kind of liken the the engineering that went into the merge as like rocket ship engineering. It's like, you know, aerodynamic level precision that went into this transition. And, um, you know, one of the, the key things that I know um, Consensus has published about uh, was the, the energy consumption has been reduced by 99.9% which is uh, extremely, extremely interesting and uh, a net positive. But could you kind of walk us through from consensus's point of view or from your point of view, you know, what the, what the ethos of the merge is and the, the, the next vision for Ethereum 2.0? Um, is it just about the energy? I, I have a feeling it's not. There, there's, there's something deeper probably afoot. Sure. You know, I think, um, you know, we're, we're all, most of us are, people and uh have feelings and most of uh, us most of most of us are people and have feelings some of us uh, like elon musk are, are not yeah, so, people um yeah you, you never know anyway um i think you know dick dick cheney has has a darth vader heart so it, it's all <laughs> it's all uh, complicated anyway um and so this is the story of the one As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply we can care about engineering and about numbers and we can talk about how you know security for the ethereum protocol is greater under proof of stake than under proof of work because uh you know like more capital is required to do a 51% attack than than if you were to you know acquire the miners or or build out that capacity so uh we can talk about that we can talk about um the supply side and the the improvements you know security is cheaper so you have to have 
you, you're paying less for securities, there's less inflation. And so Ethereum becomes, from the supply side, can be a, a deflationary asset, meaning that there's less of it rather than more of it over time, mm. unlike the US dollar. And, and we can talk about the the carbon footprint in sort of numbers, right? So what does it really mean? Well, you're not cranking up graphics cards plugged into the electric socket to mine anymore. You are using digital capital in a digital mathematical equation to get returns. And everybody that wants to participate in that is, is not buying up hardware or, or again, you know, like consuming electricity. And it, so it kind of get- brings me back to what you were saying a bit earlier, sorry to interrupt, but the, about you saying the most interesting things are like, you know, the digital native kind of advancements. And this really is what Ethereum, this 2.0 launch is, you know, it's an advancement from uh, having, you know, exogenous forms of energy production to now it's all endogenous. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's right. And you know, if you kind of abstract a bit more, like all this stuff is complicated math, right? Cryptography is complicated math with a with a hundred year history. Like it's it's the state of the art for securing data and information, and the proof of stake mechanism. And then if you you know if you want to look at like uh, zk and privacy and all this stuff, end of the day, it's it's advances in applied mathematics. You know, and and the outcomes of this are this reduction in the carbon footprint and so on. But I I bring that up to say, actually, what people I think need right now is the story and not a story to move market prices. That doesn't really work for very long, but a story to like organize. Again, I go back to this to organize economic activity. And like we started with a really depressing markets are down, pensions are this, inflation's that, like there's no good news. Right, you're not right. going to get good news from the Fed. You're not going to get news good news from Ukraine. You're not going to get good news from China. Like, we need a source of, of of hope and good news, and we need a utopia towards which to to drive. And even if if the utopia is wrong in some way, that's okay, right? What you need is just like a, a motivation. Exactly, you need like a we're going in this direction because it's going to be better in this way. And like, yeah, it's it, it sucks in a lot of different places. But if you build here, if you work here, there are new kinds of rewards available. There are new kinds of communities. Like you can belong to communities. You can be, you know, artists in in a new way. You can build new types of businesses. You can get better returns. And now with with this bit about um, the the ESG impact, you're you're all you're no longer compromising that vision with climate impact. And it almost, it doesn't matter if you believe or not believe the climate impact story and the mining story. And, you know, if folks on the Bitcoin side will continue to struggle with that narrative for better or worse. And it's not their fault, I think. But we're just removing that objection from the thousands or potentially millions of people who want to be NFT artists on Ethereum, who, you know, who don't have to go through contortions to to participate in web three because they can use the, you know, the core chain, the mainnet chain and, um, and not have a carbon footprint. And so for me, it's again, just kind of focusing all the energy in a place where there is a potential to grow a new economy. There's different types of property rights. There's different types of creativity. And I think the merge is, is demonstration that the protocol can deliver on that and open that up for people. Yeah. And and I did remember, you know, hearing all these, these folks talk about, um, you know, we, we love NFTs. We like the idea of having royalties, uh, you know, automatically attached, but we hate the, uh, the energy kind of component, uh, you know, that it has. So there's now, you know, is it fair to call NFTs on Ethereum green, um, and ESG compliant? Yeah, I, I think it is fair. Um, I mean, when I email you, a image is that a green image in your email i don't know <laughs> like we i don't think we necessarily need to it, it should just be the default right that this is that that modern blockchain technology you know doesn't have uh, a negative climate impact and that people shouldn't be prevented from contributing to it for that reason you know i think that skeptics will always find a way to be skeptical there will be other reasons that people will create um, and that's fine. I, I think that again, if you look at 
Web3 over the last, let's say, five years, a lot of the things that were a problem in the beginning have been addressed. And then, of course, there's lots of things left for all of us to do. Yeah. Well, why don't we why don't we talk about um, before we before we uh, take off? Why don't we talk about CodeFi and staking? Uh, it, you know, CodeFi is something that you have been affiliated with. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? Sure. Um, I, I think the I'll just say it, it, I'll, I'll talk about it in this way. So um, Consensus does a lot of protocol level work. Meaning, literally contributing code to to protocols and helping um, helping the merge happen and so on. And so, one of the things that we that we have is a project that helps institutions stake. So it it's it's a software underneath the staking services that people use. It's not the only one. There there's lots of other ones. And generally speaking, we want lots of staking providers. We don't want centralization of staking. Mm because that's that's an attack vector for for the network. And so um you know one one of our projects is to support staking on Ethereum and then you know helping institutions of different kinds, fully crypto native institutions, crypto exchanges as well as more traditional institutions like we want maximal interest in staking and for technical teams that want to um that want a really secure and rigorous solution that that's what we provide there. And, uh, Infura is another massive, uh, fair to say product line from consensus. And uh, I read an announcement recently that they're, um, focusing on, uh, decentralizing their infrastructure. Cause right now it's maybe a little bit more centralized, another attack vector. Could you kind of paint us a picture of, of what the, the future of Infura, the future of Infura might look like? Yeah. So I, I've uh, framed this a little bit before, right? Which is that across our products, we are thinking about what a web three motion looks like while continuing to be compliant and su- subject to uh, all the, all the sort of like right answers as it relates to regulation. Um, and so there are things that we might like to do that we're not able to do. And if we did them, it would just break the industry. And so we, we, we won't, but there's lots of other things that we can do that can enable our communities and can give them more control and more participation in the core, the core parts of the web three ecosystem, you know, like there, there are many uh, important protocols that are running on Infura. There are many important protocols that are running on Alchemy. Um, and, th- you know, these companies today are organized in a, in a Web2 fashion. But over time, they, they should become uh, much closer to, to, to a Web3 organization. And, and that means, like, how do you think about the code base? Who runs the code base? Mm. Which parts of the code base? Can things, some things can be uh, decentralized and some things can't because they might not be sufficiently performant if they're decentralized. And, you know, like no amount of financial incentives is good enough if like your app doesn't load if you use a particular protocol because it's not running in the right way. So there's lots of substantive questions yet in terms of how we're designing uh, a more decentralized Infura, but you know we wanted to signal to the ecosystem that this is something that we're doing, that we're working on it, um, and to open up uh, kind of f- for feedback and for participation from either people that want to run decentralized infrastructure as as part of you know the group or the the protocol, you know, or other infrastructure providers that that would want to be uh, partnered with us on on this initiative. Hey, somebody's got to be the pioneer, right? Kind of go where no man has gone. <laughs> it looks like uh, that's exactly what consensus is doing. And um, kind of just to round things out, you know, I mean, this was this was killer, and, and I wish we could go longer. But you know, as a guy who used to work at, at Lehman and, and Deutsche and Barclays, um, and, and now who's the head economist of you know, argu- uh, arguably, you know, the, one of the largest crypto companies out there, definitely the largest Ethereum affiliated company. Um, you know, what is just a, a word of wisdom uh, to a new listener? Maybe this is his first time ever listening to a crypto podcast. His or her mind just got blown. What's what's one thing that you would uh, you would tell them just to make their their life a little bit easier here in the crypto world? Curiosity is a virtue, and novelty is a good guide. 
at least for me, mm. you know, so I, I started my career in 2006 at Lehman. By 2009, I was um, done with Wall Street and uh, had had gone through a very um, foundational experience for me um, mm. that, that, that had a lot of lessons look, that look similar to where we are today. And I went into fintech and started building a company in the robo-advisor space in 20, 2010 uh, when it was quite early for that and spent a whole bunch of time seeking, looking for novelty and following sort of the edge of what people were doing, trying to apply it rigorously to a pretty complicated industry. And, you know, after working in, in fintech for uh, a little bit over half a decade, I, I switched more into research and then uh, crypto and DeFi and, and uh, Web3. And I think my decision process has very much been what feels like the most different and foreign and uncomfortable? And can I be curious about that? And if I'm curious about that, can I understand it? And if I understand it, can I imagine if it's right, how can that thing be, be real? You know, cause it's, it's so easy to break things. It is much harder to build things. Mm. So, you know, I would encourage people to, to take that kind of, maybe more artistic approach, more creative approach to the space and figure out how you can add to it. Yeah. One of the things I like to say is like, you know, everything that's in reality kind of started from a person's imagination. Um, and so don't be afraid to dream. Don't be afraid to uh, to think up of some crazy ideas and, and build it yourself or partner with people uh, that are doing uh in, in increasingly novel things. So Lex, thank you so much for, for coming on the Crypto 101 podcast. If people enjoyed this conversation and they want to learn more about you or follow your work, do you have a Twitter or a Discord channel or anything that you could kind of point people to? Yeah, uh, lots of links. So check out consensus.net and download MetaMask, of course. For me, I'm uh, Lex. Twitter. And then I also uh, write a weekly newsletter called the FinTech Blueprint. So you can just get that at fintechblueprint.com. And um, then I will talk at you in your email box every single week. Awesome. What did what, you say your Twitter, your Twitter handle was? Lex Sokolin. Perfect. All right, everybody. Uh, look for those in the show notes. And uh, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week or weekend whenever you're listening to this. We'll see you soon. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.